0: So I remember reading a story um, a, a few years back now, I think, about a, a Christian, a young lady it was, who, um, who walked away from her faith in Christ, and she joined the Krishna movement instead. Um, it was quite a sad story to read, actually. But, but what I found particularly tragic about it was that her church had unintentionally been helping her to make the switch. You see, she'd attended uh, the church regularly since she was a, a teenager. She, she remembered going there for the first time um, and seeing so many happy people and thinking to herself, wow, I want what they've got. And, and so along she came, she came uh, regularly. She listened very carefully to the, the, the preaching that was, the sermons that were being preached week by week, and a regular part of that teaching was the message that if she invited Jesus into her life then the Holy Spirit would take away the feelings of sadness and the feelings of failure um, that that she often felt and and would replace those with feelings of happiness and and with success and those kind of things instead and and for a while it seemed to work She, she felt happier Um, but then uh, a tragedy occurred in her life actually her parents marriage fell apart it was an acrimonious uh, uh, split she was caught up in the kind of all the infighting that was going on and all of those good feelings left and 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 they were replaced with bad feelings sad feelings um, which actually caused her just to be crying every day for 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 weeks and weeks and weeks But all through that, the message that her church was still giving her was that Jesus would give her victory over all those bad feelings and sad feelings and they'd replace them with good feelings. She just needed to have enough faith. But she suspected that none of that was true. And her reasoning was that if Jesus is there to give me good feelings and make me happy and all I seem to be getting are sad and bad feelings, then Christianity doesn't work. It's fake. Jesus isn't who he says he is. And that was when the invitation came from a friend of hers that had recently joined the Krishna movement who said, Oh, you should come and join us, because Krishna can give you all those happy feelings too. And so she thought she'd, she'd give it a try. She went along to the local Krishna center. She learned to sing the mantra. She she reckoned that she felt much better. Her bad feelings became good feelings, and so she ditched Jesus as her Lord. And made Krishna her Lord instead. Now I'm sure there were a load of different feelings that that were at play. Factors that were at play in in the woman's decision to do that. But, But at least one of them. Right at the heart of it. Was that her confidence in her Christian faith wasn't there. See whatever else was going on in her life at the time. She lacked assurance in her faith in Christ. She got no certainty. She had no confidence that it was all true but that wasn't the deepest issue because underneath her lack of assurance was a whole bunch of wrong false teaching about the christian faith that she'd actually received from her church because of course if the message of christianity is simply that jesus wants to make you feel good well when you don't feel good you'll inevitably start to doubt whether christianity works whether it's really all true in other words, faulty teaching about the Christian faith inevitably leads to lack of confidence in the Christian faith. Lack of assurance that it's all true. But what it also does is lead people to actually seek out false teaching. right? Teaching that makes bigger promises, you know, that, that kind of offset the doubts. In this woman's case, it was the teachings of the Krishna movement, but of course there are plenty of other options available, aren't there? So, did you see? It's like a a vicious circle. Wobbly Christians, if you like, are very often the product of wobbly teaching. But then wobbly teaching is often most attractive to wobbly Christians. And that's not just the case in today's church, of course, but it's always been the case. Which is why what John is putting forward in this letter here is kind of foundational teaching, stable teaching, if you like, to produce stable Christians. Because, you see, friends, God really does want us to be confident as Christians. I wonder whether you look sometimes at other Christians. Maybe you feel like they always seem so confident in their faith, but you often feel plagued with doubts. You ever have that I mean you're a Christian uh, of course, you, you know you're actively trusting in the Lord Jesus as your savior you 're seeking to follow him as your Lord, but there's a ton of things connected to that that you're constantly unsure about you know there are so many voices in our society that claim to be Christian and they all seem to say different things or, or you get some Christians who who claim some special extra experience if you really want to know god and and so that causes our faith to be plagued with doubts. Do I really know God? Can I really be sure about the truth of who Jesus is, or what his gospel message is, or or whether he'll really save me if I place my trust in him or whether I really am forgiven or whether I can be sure about heaven to come or about his his care for me now. Well friends, God wants us to have confidence of the truth about Jesus. He wants you to be certain Hence, he's caused the Apostle John to write this letter, I think. So this is the same John who wrote the Gospel uh, of John. um, And and in the Gospel of John, if you remember, he he tells us why he wrote that, doesn't he? He says it right at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse uh, 31. These things are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so have life in his name. So John says he's written his gospel so that people would know God, so that they would believe the truth about Jesus and so have eternal life in his name. And to have eternal life is to know God, isn't it? John 17 reminds us, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he's told us why he's written his gospel, but he's also told us here in this letter why he's written his letter. He tells us in uh, chapter 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, he writes the gospel so that people would know God and he writes this letter so that people would know that they know God. (laughs) He wants them to have confidence. He wants them to have certainty, assurance about the truth of Jesus. And frankly, he needs to write the letter because the churches that he's writing to, this is a a kind of a circular letter to churches in uh, what was called then Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, that the churches that he's writing to are being influenced by a, a group of people who've kind of split away from John's church because they were teaching a false gospel. And John refers to those people in chapter 2, uh, verse 19, when he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They didn't really belong to us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. And now it seems that having left the church in which John was a member, probably set up their own church, you know, something like that, some of them are now turning up at other churches that John's church are in fellowship with and bringing with them that same false teaching. And it's a different teaching that, as we'll see, has a different morality attached to it as well. And as usual with these things, it's just close enough to the truth to kind of be seductive but it's undermining the confidence of the christians that john is writing to that's the problem and it's undermining their confidence because what the false teachers are claiming is that they have a kind of special anointing from from god by which they have been given the true knowledge of god do, do you see in other words they they're the ones who are really in the know however what they believed and taught was basically, it's what the scholars call today Gnosticism. Um, and it's basically the, 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 the idea that physical things were bad and that spiritual things were good. You know, the things associated with the physical, the material world, were inferior things, uh, 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 inferior to those things that are in the, in the spiritual realm, if you like. And, and, that, and that idea led the false teachers to teach two very dangerous errors a a dangerous theological error and a dangerous moral error and and the theological error was that they didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God Um, with with their view that that uh, that things in the physical realm were basically bad they just couldn't accept that God took on a body in, in the person of Jesus and especially that he'd taken on a body which then became subject to, to pain and suffering on the cross. And so they came up with their own teaching instead, uh, 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 which, which said that Jesus was just a, like an ordinary human, you know, upon whom a, a, a supernatural being, the Christ, descended at his baptism and then left him before his, his crucifixion. In other words, Jesus was just a normal guy who was kind of inspired, uh, as it were, for for part of his life and then the moral error that they taught was that because our bodies belong to this inferior physical world and not the superior spiritual world it didn't matter much what you did with your body right how you lived uh provided that you believed the right things so this is this is gnosticism and and it's still pretty attractive in today's church as well of course um do you find it hard to live a a moral life well don't worry as long as you've prayed the prayer you know don't worry about actually changing how you behave or or are there are there bits of the bible that you're not too sure about well don't worry because what matters is the kind of the inner experience spiritual experience of the now you know not the so-called objective truths of the past faith is is in the heart it's not in the head it's about feelings rather than facts you probably hear that around quite a bit of course, the trouble with it is that it results in basically a whatever works for you kind of Christianity, which, whilst, whilst it might retain the name Christian, is, is, is really nothing of the sort. You see, if Jesus is not God, you know, the second person of the Trinity, well, God hasn't fully and finally spoken through him. If, if Jesus didn't die on the cross as God, well, our sins have not been dealt with. If, if Jesus is not God, then Christians are blaspheming by worshipping a man. See, the, the stakes are high. And, and what John does in this letter it is to write to them to give them confidence about the truth of Jesus. Confidence to, to counter the wrong teaching that is undermining their confidence. You see, he wants them to have certainty so that's what the letter is about and and he starts that here in chapter one by bringing them back to, to what we might call the kind of stable foundations on which our faith is to be built foundations that were being undermined by the false teaching in in john's day and are often undermined by the false teaching of our own day as well and so foundations that he wants them to grasp and be certain of So let's have a look at what I've called um, a faith to stand by in verses one to four. So he wants them to know that the Christian faith is a faith to stand by, a faith they can be certain of. And that is, first of all, because it's revelational. Um, Have a look at verses one and two. That which was from the beginning And, and maybe the the first thing that we ask as we read those verses is, well, who is he talking about? What is he talking about here? You know. So he says, "That which was from the beginning." What what's that? Well, it it, it seems to be something eternal. It's from the beginning, which we have heard. So so it's a message of some kind which we have seen with our eyes. So it's an eternal message that you can see but but more than that verse 1 which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands so whatever john is talking about here it's an eternal message which they have heard and seen and touched right it's a message in a tangible form something physical that you can touch uh, and then end of verse 1 it's concerning the word of life, in in fact, not simply concerning the word of life, but more than that. Look, verse two: th- this uh, this eternal, tangible message is life itself. It's life made manifest. Verse two: it's life that's appeared and been seen and and testified to and and proclaimed as the eternal life, which which was with the Father and was then made manifest to us. Verse two: do you see? So you need to kind of unravel the language a little bit, but once you do that, it's actually pretty clear just, just what, or, or rather whom, John is talking about, isn't it? He's talking about Jesus as the Son of God, isn't he? Because it's Jesus, the Son of God, who is eternal, who's from the beginning, right? It's Jesus who is a message. He's, he's God's word, To us God's self-expression who who comes to us preaching and teaching it's Jesus who who comes to us as tangible and and touchable you know come comes in physical form so that he could be seen uh, as well as heard and and touched with with hands because he comes as a human man it's Jesus who is eternal life because eternal life is to know God And if you want to know what that looks like to perfection, look at Jesus. who was known God from eternity and knows God so perfectly that he is eternal life. It's exemplified in him. So friends, he's talking about Jesus here, isn't he? As being God the Son. And and, and don't miss the point of, of John writing it. Which is that God the Son, this eternal life who was with the Father from the beginning... You know, in other words, the the transcendent, the the divine God himself has been revealed, right? He's been made manifest. He's appeared. And and John says, we've heard him and seen him and touched him. Do Do you see? John is telling us that this really happened. He's telling us that God himself has physically appeared in our world, in our history as a human man and we he says actually heard and saw and touched the divine God that's what he's saying now this this this, you know idea of Jesus being God that's probably quite familiar I guess to, to most of us but can I ask you do you really believe that are you convinced that that is true Are you personally persuaded that if you had been born a couple of thousand years earlier than you were, a couple of thousand miles southeast of here, that you too could have heard and seen and touched God? Because that is how definite, that's how concrete Jesus coming into the world as God in the flesh actually is. And if you are not utterly convinced of that, Your faith in Christ will never be a confident one. You'll never have assurance. But you can have assurance because the Christian faith is historical and factual. Do you see? You can check this stuff out. You can be convinced by the evidence. Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not faith despite the evidence. It's faith because of the evidence. Now, we'll see it a little bit later in the letter, um, the false teachers here, they really didn't like this very much. Uh, they didn't like the idea of Jesus the man really being God, and, and so they, they denied it. So it, it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus, they did, it's not that they didn't believe in God, they did, they, they, they believed that both of them were real, it's just that they didn't believe that Jesus was God. And of course, that's quite common today as well, isn't it? Just just about everyone agrees that Jesus was a real person who lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine. It's quite hard to deny that. But most people think he was just a man and nothing more. It's also true, of course, despite the the best efforts of the, the atheists, that most people in the world believe at least in a God or gods of some description. But most don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't like putting God and Jesus together. And actually, that's quite convenient, isn't it? To, to believe that Jesus was not God. Because if I believe that God is somebody out there, you know, somebody remote, uh, remote from me and from my life in, in this physical world now, a God who hasn't revealed himself, a, a God that I can only get a bit of an impression of, you know, but, but ultimately no more than that, well, that leaves me free to do what I want, doesn't it? But actually what the Bible tells us, and what John is saying here, is that God has revealed himself right, in concrete and tangible form so that we can know him and can be sure about him. We're we're not left to guess who who God is and, and what he's like because God has revealed himself to us by coming to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. God's not a mystery to us. Right? People in our world and our history have heard and seen and touched God so that we can be confident and certain about him. So friends, here's a reason why the Christian faith is a faith to stand by, right? why you can be certain of it. It's because it's revelational. Right? We can know God because he's revealed himself to us in Jesus. But the Christian faith is also a faith to to stand by. You you can also be certain of it, not just because it's revelational, but because it's relational. Because, you know, we we could say, couldn't we, uh, why does the fact that these people were certain 2,000 years ago mean that I should be certain now? I I mean, they were there, you know, but but I wasn't. Well, did did you notice how John uses the words, uh, we, and our, and us, in those first few verses. We heard, we saw, we touched, you know, you didn't, verse 1, which is why we testify to it, verse 2, and proclaim it to you, verse 3, and write it down, verse 4. So, so there's, a, there's a group of people here, isn't there, we, in, in which the Apostle John counts himself, who did hear and see and touch. God in the flesh and so they are testifying and proclaiming and writing it down uh, what they have heard and seen and touched uh, the word testify there in verse 2 it's a it's a legal term um, it, it's the term for a for a witness who testifies to what he's seen and heard so, so John is saying there that we and, and uh, that he sorry and others were eyewitnesses Right, We were there. We're proclaiming to you what we were witnesses of. Um, actually, the word proclaim there as well is about being given a charge or being given a, a commission to be a, like a spokesman. Which, which kind of tells us who the we are, doesn't it? Because, of course, in the Gospels, including John's Gospel, of course, uh, as well as in the book of Acts, we see Jesus commissioning his apostles, don't we, to be his spokesmen to testify to what they've seen and heard. Uh, And then if you look back at verse uh, 3, we're told the purpose of the apostles proclaiming what they've seen and heard. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son the Lord Jesus so the purpose of John proclaiming Christ is so that his readers can share together in what he has that's what the word fellowship means isn't it sharing together in something so he's proclaiming Jesus Christ so that you too may have fellowship with us so that you can share together in what we have and and what is that well, end of verse 3, it's our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what a Christian is, isn't it? A Christian isn't just someone who's simply been forgiven from their sin and rescued of its consequences or given a ticket to heaven or, or something like that. No, a Christian is someone who is in fellowship or in relationship with God, the Father and the Son. You see, it's, it's not just that being a Christian means you benefit from God, right? But that you're in a living relationship with God, a sharing together with God. And friends, here's the point. You come to know God. You come to have a living relationship with God through what the apostles have heard and seen and touched and testify to and proclaim and and write down. Do, Do you see? To believe what the apostles testified to and proclaimed and wrote brings us into a living relationship with God by faith. In other words, it doesn't matter that you weren't there. What matters is that they were there. And that they've testified to what they saw and heard. And they've proclaimed it as Jesus commissioned them to do. And they've written it down. That's what our New Testaments are, isn't it? So that we too can share with them in the same fellowship with God that they have. So that we can come to know God too. To be brought into a relationship with him. And again, friend, can, can I ask you, do, do you really believe that? Are you personally convinced of that? Are you sure that the, you know, the, the Bible you're holding in your hands it is an authoritative testimony and proclamation of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ? Do, do you believe that? Are you sure that by faith in its message of of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus, you've been brought into a living relationship with God? Not because of the quality of your faith, but just because of the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus. Are you sure of that? Because if you're not sure, your faith will lack certainty. But John writes this so that you will be sure, so that you'll be certain of it. You know, of course, you, um, you, you might have a, a view of the Bible that the Bible is just really man's ideas about God. You know, maybe just one set of ideas amongst many of, as to who God is. That, that's quite a common way of thinking about the Bible. It's not uncommon actually within the church, very sadly. But it's not what the Bible says about itself. So I'd urge you to challenge what is a very unsafe assumption. That will never give you certainty. Because if Jesus is God come to earth in the flesh. And if the apostles actually did as they claim and proclaim. Hear and see and touch God on earth. This book is not simply their ideas. It's not simply one view among many. But it is what it claims to be. Which is the reliable eyewitness testimony and proclamation of God coming to earth. And so therefore the way to, to know that you can know him. <laughs> the way to have certainty about him. So John wants his readers to know that the Christian faith is a faith to stand by. You can have certainty of the truth about Jesus you can really know God because he's revealed himself in Jesus and because through faith in in the the apostolic testimony to him in the scriptures we are brought into a relationship with God such that we share together in the same fellowship with God that those first apostles had But finally, look, let's have a quick look at verses 5 to 10, because um, he, he wants his readers also to know that the Christian faith is a faith to live by. Okay, have, uh, have a look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So he's, he's kind of starting there with a basic truth, isn't he, about God's nature, that he is light. Okay, light is, is sometimes used in the Bible as a metaphor for um, kind of revealing something. So, so, kind of, light shines in order to reveal something that's hidden by the darkness. It's used in that way. Um, but the other way it's used, and this is how it's used here, is as a metaphor for the, uh, for the moral purity. Of God or for God's perfect holiness and, and you'll notice he makes a, a contrast between light and darkness and then he goes on to talk about us walking in darkness do you see verse 6 which he, he equates with lying or not practicing the truth and, and then he talks about our sin in verse 8 and so on so John's point is that God is light uh, which by which he means that he is morally perfect he is he is utterly pure and and sinless and holy there's no darkness in him at all okay there's there's not even a hint of sin in in other words God has revealed himself in Jesus verses one to four and the God that he has revealed himself to be in Jesus verse five is a God who is utterly pure and holy uh, and, and good But, of course, the question that raises then is, how can we have a relationship with a God like that? Because, of course, my life, our lives, they couldn't be described as utterly pure and good, could they? But rather, lives that contain quite a lot of darkness and and failure. Now, now one way that the false teachers were trying to deal with that question was by teaching that because our bodies belong to the kind of inferior physical world and not to the superior spiritual one, well, they could behave in any way they liked, you know, as long as they believed the right things. In other words, the the darkness doesn't really matter. Sin doesn't really matter. But but John says, no. Look, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. In other words, you can't claim to have fellowship with God while your behavior is a living rejection of God's ways. You can't do that. It's just not good enough to, to claim that darkness doesn't matter, that how you behave doesn't affect your fellowship with God. And, of course, that's not just a first-century issue, is it? Plenty of people today think the same. In, in, in fact, you know, morality itself is, is pretty much a, a personal choice these days, isn't it? We, we have our own morality that we, we kind of make up for ourselves. And we certainly don't see that our spirituality has any effect on how we live. right? It's like they're in different, different departments. But John says, no, God is light, verse 5. So if we claim fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth, by which he means the, the truth that God has revealed about himself in Jesus, the, the truth that God is light. Do you see? We, you can't be walking with God, who is light, if you're walking in the darkness. But the other way that the false teachers uh, seem to be dealing with the question is by saying not, not only that the darkness doesn't matter, but that the darkness doesn't even exist. Have a look at verse... Um, Eight. if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so, so the idea he's he's saying no to here is, is not the idea that sin doesn't matter but that they don't have any sin there's no sin in them we're we're already morally pure and and good now you can see the same kind of thing in verse 10 uh, as well if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar uh, his word is not in us do you see um so so the idea here is that for me sin doesn't even exist and I I think that too is a is a kind of thinking that to some degree is still around isn't it in in various forms not not that anyone probably would claim to be perfect but there's plenty of people who would say well basically we're good you know it's just that bad things happen to us Or, or there's an increasing tendency today I think to kind of explain away wrongful behavior as not really our fault It's it's just our circumstances, it's just my upbringing, um, it's just my genetic makeup. In other words, we're not really sinners, we're just victims. And and, and if the idea that sin doesn't matter ignores what God is like, that that he is light, well, the idea that sin doesn't exist just ignores what we are like. Doesn't it? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Do you see? To pretend that we're basically good, it's just that bad things happen to us. Well, that's to deceive ourselves. It's to ignore what we're like. So, so John here, he's, he's realistic enough, isn't he, to, to know that we do sin as, as Christians. Sometimes we sin terribly as Christians. We, we can backslide, we can fall into temptations. We can fall into temptations that can grieve us so much, leave us so scarred, that they undermine our confidence that we are even saved at all. Maybe that goes for some of us this morning. Maybe we're haunted by the memory of a sin that, that just shames us so much. Maybe the thought that God is light, you know, that he's, he's totally pure and moral. Maybe that's more of a painful thought for you than a comforting one. And then you're thinking, well, since, since darkness does exist, since, since it does matter... Well, how can we who are dark possibly know a God who is light, in, in whom there is no darkness at all? How can we know a God like that? Well, friends, the answer is not to do with what the false teachers seem to be teaching. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Verse 9. If we confess our sin, right? We don't pretend it doesn't matter. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. We admit that it does. And so we confess what we've done wrong. We admit that on our own, we don't deserve fellowship with God. right? We don't deserve to know him and, and be in a relationship with him. If that is our attitude to our sin, then, verse 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is probably a verse that we use quite regularly isn't it, in, in times of confession? It trips off the tongue for us as Christians. But do you see how extraordinary those words are? He is faithful and just, but he still forgives our sin. And we might think, well, surely if, if, if we are if we are sinful and he is pure, then for him to be faithful and for him to be just would, would be for him to punish our sin, wouldn't it? So how come he can be faithful and just and yet forgive us and cleanse us? How does he do that? Well, friends, it's because the God who is light, who is utterly holy and pure and good, has made an amazing provision which enables us to come into his light. Right, And that instead of simply claiming to be in fellowship with God, verse 6, whilst walking in darkness... Actually, we are instead to walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, we seek to live in consistency with who God is, not in rejection of who God is. And what this leads to, verse 7, is not only the kind of fellowship with one another, that verse 3 reminded us is is rooted in the fellowship of the Father and the Son, but also when we walk in the light, when we're seeking to live in a way that pleases him, not a way that rejects what pleases him, well, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see? How come God can be faithful and just and yet still forgive the sin of those who are seeking to walk in the light? Well, it's because our cleansing, our forgiveness, our fellowship with God and with each other, and knowing God, all of that is rooted not in the fact that sin doesn't matter, Not in the fact that sin doesn't exist, but in the fact that our sin has been cleansed and forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Do do, do you see? In other words, friends, don't let your sin drive you away from God, away from Christ because you're so ashamed of it. Let your sin drive you towards Jesus in, in confession because his work on the cross... His blood shed on the cross for you has, has all the power to purify us from all sin to cleanse us verse nine from from all unrighteousness right the God who is light, the God who's blazing purity and, and holiness he is the same God who who in his Son came into our world, God in the flesh in order to pour out his own blood. To make us pure. And friend this morning he wants you to be certain of it. He wants you to be sure of it. It's why he calls this letter to be written. He wants you to know. He wants you to be confident that the blood of Christ shed once for all 2,000 years ago in the history of our world has all the power to cleanse you of all your sin. Friends, that is a faith to stand by. That is a faith to live by. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, please, by your Spirit's power, would you assure us of these things this morning? Um, Cause us to trust your word and grant us assurance. Please, please, Uh, grow our trust in you and, and in your son and in his work of the cross thank you that you write these things to give us confidence so so please would we uh would we dig into them please would we keep coming back to them that our confidence would grow and we pray in jesus name amen